What is a biblical view or a view based on the Bible of Islam? This is Evidence and Answers with author, apologist, speaker, and scholar, Pat Zucharin. Today, author Kirby Anderson talks about Islam in light of the Bible. Kirby Anderson is with Probe Ministries. You can go to probe.org for more resources, as well as our website, evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris, and today I join Pat in interviewing Kirby Anderson on Islam in light of the Bible and in light of the teachings of Christ. And I want to remind you that this is a two-part series on Islam, and you can get these resources when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Pat? Thanks, Kevin. Yes, we have with us a special guest today. Returning once again, one of our favorite guests, Kirby Anderson, host of the nationally syndicated radio talk show Point of View. He's also my boss there at Probe Ministries. He's the National Director of Probe Ministries. And we're talking about his new book out today, A Biblical Point of View on Islam. So, Kirby, welcome back to the show. Always good to be with you, Pat. Well, Kirby, there are a number of books on Islam. Why this book? Well, I think that's a good question. Uh, The good news is that there are a lot of books. And in my bibliography, I was just looking that over just a few minutes ago. And there are so many books, most of them written after 9-11, although some of them were written before. And so certainly a number of people are addressing this. Issue. One thing that I found, Pat, is that a lot of people would like to know something about Islam, but they're not real interested in sitting down and reading a 300 page book. And as much as I love some of the great material by our good friends uh, Serge Trifkovic and Robert Spencer and other things like that, I found that a lot of people are just saying, okay, just give me the basic facts. So this is a book that really takes about 60 of the most frequently asked questions. These are questions that I encounter on my program point of view or when I'm a guest on other programs like Primetime America or questions I get from an audience when I speak on Islam, just as you do, and I put it in a question and answer format. So first of all, it is a shorter book. Basically, I'm telling you that if you can uh, sit down and read 120 pages with a fair amount of white space and things like that, then we really can help you understand the issue. The second is I found a lot of people, when they're asking questions about Islam, it isn't exactly that they are looking for just one specific aspect of Islam, because some of the books that I might mention by Ergon Kainer or individuals like Robert Spencer or others, they're looking at maybe either the theology of Islam or the issue of terrorism or those kinds of things. This book, even though it's fairly short, is very comprehensive. I spend a fair amount of time telling you about the history of Islam, the structure of Islam, the theology of Islam, misconceptions, but then I also get into some of the political issues. You know, what about Islam and human rights? What about the Crusades? What about uh, Islam and terrorism? And so I think this book is a book that I hope a lot of our listeners might uh, consider getting a copy of, because it says, first of all, if you want to know some basic information, I give it to you in a very easy-to-read format. You don't necessarily have to read chapter 1 to read chapter 5, because you can just read different sections and dip in where you want. And second of all, if you kind of want a comprehensive look of all the questions I run into on a regular basis dealing with Islam, and it's really just an attempt to help people think through this issue. Uh, Another aspect of that is I found, Pat, that uh, there are a lot of people kind of frustrated about this whole issue issue as well. They're just not sensing that they're getting good information. And so when there might be some areas of controversy or disagreement, I kind of stay away from those and really focus on just some of the basic facts so that you would know how to interact with your Muslim friends, so that you'd know a little bit more about issues if you were concerned about the the way in which we're conducting our war on terror. And it's the first in a series. Perhaps I'll come back later, but there's another series of books that are following up with this. I've already written one on a biblical point of view on Islam, a biblical point of view on 
intelligent design and others. And so those are just kind of short little booklets, if you will, to help people think about some of the major issues of our day. Curry, do you find that Christians are interested in Islam? I would have to say so. Um, there are some interesting studies that have been done, and some of those studies are done by publishers who have done what are called focus groups to evaluate what are kind of the top-of-the-mind issues. Uh, we even at Pro Ministries have, over the years, have put together kind of a grid to evaluate which would be the next uh, few DVD series we might do. And it is interesting that whether you look at people in radio who find themselves coming back to the topic of Islam again and again, or whether you notice that there have been a number of publishers that have been publishing books, and they wouldn't keep publishing books in Islam if they weren't selling fairly well, or even you look at some of these various uh, marketing focus groups, and there's just a lot of evidence right now that Christians are interested in Islam. One, because they want to maybe understand what took place back uh, in uh, 9-11 and uh, how to think about that issue. Second of all, maybe they're concerned about how our foreign policy interacts with Islam. Some might be concerned about various issues in the news. Some of our listeners might remember uh, the woman that uh, got herself in trouble in Sudan simply because her students named the teddy bear Muhammad. And then others want to just know, how do I witness to my Muslim friends? It is one of the largest religions in the world, second largest religion in the world. It is perhaps the fastest or the second fastest growing religion in the world. So there is just a lot of interest right now in this issue of Islam. Yes, Kirby. And, you know, a lot of us are frustrated by the politically correct statements used to describe Islam out there. Uh, can you address this issue here? Yes, and that's another reason, frankly, that I did this book, Pat, because when you talk about this, there are just some phrases I could use real quickly. And if we were in front of an audience right now, you'd see people shaking their heads and you'd see some people rolling their eyes. Statements like, well, Christians and Muslims worship the same God. I mean, they've heard a number of political candidates make those statements. They've heard people that are elected to political office make those statements. They maybe even have heard religious leaders make those statements. But when I make that statement, I, as I'm in front of an audience, and I had an audience just recently, about 800 people to Worldview Weekend. I mean, yeah, immediately, a lot of them, yeah, I've heard that all the time. Or uh, Christianity and Islam are basically the same. Or the Bible and the Quran are basically the same. Or Islam is a religion of peace. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't peaceful Muslims, but to say that the entire religion is a religion of peace. These are lots of politically correct statements out there that a lot of people are very frustrated with. At our website, uh, probe.org, I know that people can go and actually even download a PowerPoint presentation that I've done on that subject so that if they wanted to teach this in their Sunday school class, they could do so. But that, I think, just illustrates a great deal of frustration. This desire to understand more about one of the largest religions in the world, one that also, at least part of its adherents, have been very involved in actually terrorist activities. And when most citizens, the average citizen, hears many of those politically correct statements, he or she sometimes reacts and says, I really want somebody to just simply tell the truth. I want it to be historically accurate. I want it to be theologically and biblically accurate. And so, again, I sense that that's another reason for people looking for these kinds of books, because when they open up their newspaper, they turn on the television set, even they listen to radio talk shows, they hear some of these cliches, and in their heart, they know they're not true, but they don't know how to respond to them. Yeah, you know, Curry, and what's interesting, I was just in the Middle East, and there's a lot of that politically correct language there in the Middle East as well. And however, when I bring up some of the points that are brought up in this book and in your presentation about what the Quran actually teaches, the example of Muhammad and others... 
Uh, then you see them really begin to rethink their position and really begin to rethink the whole thing. But that political correct uh, statements are out there in the Middle East as well as here in the West. Really interesting. And I don't think they do us any favors either. I mean, for example, just take one, that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Um, Christians say, I don't think that's true. Uh, most Muslims I've ever tried that phrase on are actually offended by that phrase. So oftentimes it comes from a Westerner thinking that this is a good way to show tolerance. Oh, well, we all worship the same God. But most Muslims say, that's not true. We don't believe that Allah and Yahweh are the same. And so in trying to be even tolerant or sound to be tolerant or trying to be politically correct, oftentimes we're more offensive. I think we would be better telling the truth, allowing the differences to exist and being willing to disagree without being disagreeable. But unfortunately, a lot of people find themselves really questioning some of the basic assumptions of all of this political correctness. And I think if you really want to build bridges, because one of the things we're going to be talking about here is how we witness to our Muslim friends. If you want to build bridges, you know, it might be possible to use a syncretistic, that is, all religions are basically the same kind of argument. If you're talking to someone in the Eastern religions, Hinduism or Buddhism, but um, if there has ever been a world religion that is just the antithesis, the very opposite of syncretism, it is the idea of Islam, a strict monotheism. So people, well-meaning, who think, well, this might be a, will, a way to build a bridge, actually are building a pretty good-sized barrier because they're using, if you will, the wrong kind of model, the wrong kind of worldview perspective when they're actually talking to people in Islam. Now, Kirby, you mentioned about the woman who was sentenced to six months in prison and 40 lashes because her students named the teddy bear Mohammed. <laughs> yes. Uh, could you comment on that a little bit? Well, I think so. And we'll go back to what took place in November. And uh, Gillian Gibbons was a teacher, a British teacher in Sudan, and she was teaching second graders. And they were trying to do a number of projects, one of which was as they had a teddy bear. And she gave the students an opportunity to name the teddy bear. They came up with a number of names, but the one name that was selected by the students, these are seven-year-olds, was Muhammad. Now, you can understand that there might have been a reaction to this from Muslims, because after all, a bear is an animal, and to give the name of the holy prophet to a bear would seem to be a very significant offense. But once you go back and recognize that some of the kids in the class had either had the name Muhammad or had friends whose names were Muhammad, and they weren't saying that Muhammad the prophet was the teddy bear, you can understand at least why they came up with that. And so, as some people have pointed out, the Archbishop of Canterbury a while back said, at the very worst, this was a cultural faux pas. And you would think that that would be the end of it. But as our listeners are well aware, back in November, that was hardly the end of it. It was the beginning of something that was absolutely unbelievable, because then she was sentenced to what could have been six months in jail and 40 lashes for naming a teddy bear Muhammad. At this point, you thought, okay, this was an overactive, radical Muslim in the government in Sudan. Certainly someone higher up would stop this before it got too far along. Of course, we now know the rest of the story. They were able to bring her to a court and eventually decide to put her in a jail for 15 days and are going and to deport her. But the point is, is that you can see the radical response to this. Now, even though that's, quote, all she got, but I think it's pretty significant that you get 15 days in jail and you get deported. Uh, there were those who came to Martyr Square there in Khartoum who wanted to execute her on the spot. And I think it just helps us understand a little bit more of the fact that Muhammad is very 
very revered by Muslims, especially those who tend to be the literalists, the fundamentalists, the jihadists. They see that any slight against Muhammad, even in this case where they're really just using the, the same name, but any slight against Muhammad is enough for you to be executed. And so we had a very clear example this last fall of what happens when an individual does something that is not intended to offend Islam, but nevertheless Muslims are ready to kill you because of the action that you took. So if Muhammad is supposed to be just the prophet, why is he so revered by the Muslims? Well, and I think there's a good illustration of that, because you can uh, look back to uh, the teddy bear named Muhammad. How about we look back a little further to the Danish cartoonists that had mm-hmm. pictures of Muhammad. And for those of us that have seen Jesus represented in all sorts of bizarre ways, uh, it just sort of is part of being part of a society in which we have free speech and uh, freedom of conscience and allow individuals to do all sorts of different things and say all sorts of things. But nevertheless, there, the cartoonists were for fear of their life. There was a fear on the part of other newspapers that even publishing these cartoons might cause various kinds of repercussions. So I think you have to come back to the fact that even though in the Quran, Muhammad is just a man, and even though Allah tells Muhammad that he is sinful... And and that he needs to repent of his sins. Nevertheless, within Islam, he, because he is considered the final prophet, what is known as the seal of the prophets, he tends to be revered. So while we would look in our Quran, if you were to read the Quran, you would come to the conclusion that he certainly is to be honored, but he isn't to be deified. Some of the examples over the last couple of months and years illustrate otherwise. I remember one of our staff members at Probe wrote an article years ago on Islam, back even before 9-11, and one of the emails that came in was, you know, you talk about people uh, actually worshiping Muhammad, and the Muslim is saying, we don't. Well, uh, you can disagree about the words, whether they worship them or not. Maybe they don't worship him, but certainly they revere him so much that any kind of slight, whether it's the naming of a teddy bear, whether it's cartoons, or a variety of other statements that individuals make, could bring the death sentence. And it shows that even though the Quran really doesn't elevate him to that status, the history of Islam certainly does so. Well, how do you respond to those who say Muhammad is just like any other religious leader? And that's uh, another one of those uh, politically correct statements, Pat, because I've noticed that when I go into the classroom, and I know you've spoken in classes I have as well, you go to like a religion 101, and oftentimes Muhammad is presented as like any other religious leader. But let's be honest, he is different than any other religious leader for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is, yes, he was a prophet, but he was also a military leader. And uh, it is uh, telling that uh, individuals like uh, Bernard Lewis, who was at Princeton University, emeritus professor, leading expert on the Middle East, points out that when you talk about Muhammad, you really are talking about an individual who was, yes, both a prophet, but he was also a military leader. When he was in Mecca... Certainly, he was a prophet, and he was teaching a lot about theology. But after the Hijra, or after the flight from Mecca to Medina in 622 A.D., now he is leading a military group of individuals. He is engaged in raiding caravans. He's engaged in fighting various wars. Probably the best battle is the Battle of Bader. And so he is now a leader. He's a political leader. He's a military commander. He's involved in many kinds of military actions. And so as a result, he's very different than, uh, say, Buddha or Jesus or anyone else. But let me come back to the other point that we made, and that is not only was, as a, in terms of his position, was he different, but also if you want to do a comparison between Muhammad and Jesus, you'd have to say that Muhammad is put forth as a man who had sins, 
who had to repent of his sins and uh, had failings and maybe was not even sure of his own salvation. There's a real debate about Muslims about that, but some would certainly acknowledge that. If you go to what the Bible says about Jesus, Jesus claimed to be God. His followers claimed that he was sinless. They claimed that he was the way to God. So the differences between Muhammad and Jesus are about as striking as they could possibly be. And oftentimes I find that that, if you were talking to Muslims in this country, is kind of a good conversation starter. Okay, you believe in uh, Muhammad being the final prophet, but Muhammad also talks about a previous prophet, Isha, or Jesus, who is sinless. Wouldn't you like to know more about this prophet who was sinless? Because even Muhammad didn't claim to be sinless, but Jesus did. And that then opens the door for them to maybe read one of the Gospels. Some people send them to the Gospel of Mark, others to the Gospel of John, to help them understand just a little bit more about who Jesus was. Yes, you know, even the Quran says that Jesus did miracles, that Jesus ascended to heaven, that Jesus was uh, born of a virgin. And you put Jesus and Muhammad side by side. Even in the Quran, it appears that Jesus is greater than Muhammad. Well, and I certainly think that uh, what you see is Muhammad is saying very nice things about Jesus. Also, you can see that he teaches in Surah 1094 that if an individual who is a Muslim has doubt about what Muhammad has revealed to them, uh, then they can go back to the book from before. Or if you go to Surah 4, it even talks about the before books, and that's the Old and the New Testament. So again, uh, you can get a, a very good, really, even a sort of almost a biblical view of certain aspects of Jesus, born of a virgin, uh, performing miracles, sinless, and then you are also encouraged to go and read more about that Jesus. And that has been a very, very effective evangelistic strategy, so that as you're talking to your Muslim friends, you can say, well, you have read the Quran. Would you not like to read the before books, the Old and New Testament? And because of that, as they read through, especially, say, the Gospel of John, it will be familiar territory, because some of the things that uh, John is telling them about Jesus, the Quran has also been telling them about Jesus. But the significant difference is the Quran would say that he was a prophet, might even say he was a Messiah, but in a different sense in terms of the New Testament. And, of course, in the New Testament, it teaches that he was the Son of God. But it does provide, I think, a great entree for some of your Muslim friends. Well, you mentioned this earlier. What about the statement that Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Well, and that's, I think, important because that's another evangelistic opportunity. What I have found is that if you really set forth the differences between the God of the Old and New Testament and the God of the Quran, you're talking about two very different gods. For example... Um, in the Quran, it teaches that Allah is distant, he's transcendent, uh, he is unknowable. He reveals himself through his word, the Quran, he reveals himself through the angel, say Gabriel, reveals himself through his uh, uh, prophets like Muhammad, but he is not knowable, you cannot know him personally. And so in terms of knowing God, Allah is distant, he's unknowable. Whereas in the Bible, uh, we see very clearly that we can know God personally. Um, one of the most famous verses, John three sixteen. you know, the idea that he came into the world, that God became man, came into the world, and that we can have everlasting life and we can have a relationship with him. Other places in the New Testament, we can call God Abba, Father. We can, we can call him Father. So there's sort of like a father-son or father-daughter relationship in the Bible, whereas in the Quran, most people have said it's more kind of like a master-slave relationship. Allah determines all. Sha'Allah is a phrase you hear Muslims say oftentimes, you know, as Allah wills. And so the idea that everything that is happening was determined by Allah. 
Well, that's different from the Bible because we would believe certainly in the sovereignty of God, but we also believe in free will. So those are very important issues. How about the issue of even the idea of the love of God? Well, the there are various statements in the Quran about people that that Allah does not love, you know, infidels, sinners, and others, those who are to be punished. Whereas here we see, again, in the Bible, for God so loved, what? The world, not just individuals, that he gave his only begotten son. So there are striking differences between the character of God, the relationship we can have with God, and the love of God. And again, many of those provide some real evangelistic opportunities. Yes, you know, I was talking with a Muslim, and he says, no, we worship the same God. And I talked about the imagery in the Old and New Testament of God as God being a shepherd who loves and cares intimately for his sheep. Uh, The prodigal son, how his father came running to him. Uh, Images like that are present throughout the Bible about God and his relationship to people, but it's absent in the Quran. There's no imagery like that of Allah to his people. Oh, it's great. I mean, we think about the parables of Jesus so many times. Uh, God is portrayed, or Jesus is portrayed as a loving father, as the good shepherd, uh, um, so many other aspects of that. So you have some tremendous opportunities to just illustrate easily that you're talking about a God with love, a God with care and compassion for the world, whereas in Islam, uh, it is sort of a deterministic God who very quickly created the world, is somewhat distant from the world, and ultimately we will only have true contact with him at the final judgment. Uh, the teaching is is that each individual is born with a good angel on one shoulder and a bad angel on another, keeps track of all of our good and bad deeds, and eventually on this great fulcrum, this great uh, opportunity, the scale will determine whether or not we get into heaven or not. Well, that's a very different kind of judgmental, distant God, and certainly not the God that we read about in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Well, Kirby, how can we use these comments and questions to witness to our Muslim friends? Let's talk about that for a minute. We talked just a minute ago about the idea of the love of God. There was an interesting survey that was done a number of years ago by a seminary, and they looked at about 600 students and other individuals who had converted out of Islam into Christianity. Now that's numbers up to 750, but when I wrote my book, it was about 600. And they asked them, what was the thing that was most uh, significant in you becoming a Christian? The number one reason was, Pat, the fact that you could know God personally, the love of God. So I oftentimes say to people that I'm speaking to, make sure that when you're talking to your Muslim friends, make sure that you talk about the love of God. Number two, real quickly, I might also mention that they also were um, attracted by this idea of eternal security, that we could actually know our eternal destiny. So spend some time talking about that. But as you talk to your Muslim friends, recognize that they're going to believe that we are saved by works. Take them to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we're saved by grace, that not of ourselves, rather than works. And those are, I think, some very key principles that you can take from our understanding of Islam as we witness to our Muslim friends. Kirby, a quick side road. In your research, have you heard stories about Christ himself appearing in Muslim lands? Now, I know that uh, we we can't believe everything that that comes down the pike this way, but some very trustworthy people seem to be testifying that this is occurring. And I can see how it would in that those areas are so impenetrable to the gospel that in God's grace, Christ himself is appearing in dreams and, and, and so on to Muslim people. Have you found any of that to be valid? Certainly. One of the things I found is that there are 
lots of stories of individuals having dreams, and then from those dreams, acting upon it, either going and reading the Bible, or in some cases, even committing their lives to the Lord, because they believe that Jesus appeared to them in dreams. Um, Again, we don't want to validate all of those, but many of them have very specific scriptural specificity. I'll tell one story of an individual I was talking to just the other day, and a Muslim had had this dream. He shared this with this individual who was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, fortunately, and he immediately said, well, I know where that is specifically written. He pulls out the Old Testament and shows them in Jeremiah that his dream was identical to what was in the book of Jeremiah. So when it has that level of scriptural specificity, I've got to believe that that came from the Lord. And so I, while I do not want to account for all of those dreams, and some we might discount as you know some kinds of experiences, it does seem that many of these dreams have been used by God to lead people to himself. Yes, we've been interviewing Kirby Anderson, National Director of Probe Ministries, and he's got a great new book out that you're going to want to get, A Biblical Point of View on Islam. And Kirby, thanks for being on the show. We'll see you you next week. Okay. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. There's a new feature on our website called iShows, where you can download each individual show for just $2.50 on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want, and we've got some of the top scholars on there. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure and visit us online at evidenceandanswers.org.